Chapter 24 of Up the River by Oliver Optic A Crevasse on the Mississippi This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Mrs. Shepherd came on board, she seemed to be more composed. She declared that when the whole country was under water, she felt better to be in a boat. During the night the water had risen nearly a foot, and the citizens were not a little alarmed. Hundreds of laborers were at work on the levees, and several small crevasses had been made a few miles above the city. We had engaged a pilot, though rather for the information he could give us than because we needed him in the navigation of the river. Captain Cao had taken leave of us, and Colonel Shepard had paid his bill for services and expenses. I liked the pilot very well, and I was sorry to lose him. The white man and the negroes rescued from the floating building stayed on board as long as we remained at the wharf. It was not easy for them to return to their homes, and they had no money to pay for their food and shelter. We made up a liberal purse for them and divided it equally among them, and they went ashore very grateful to us for what we had done. Captain Blasplow said they made more money by coming with us than they could by staying at home. At Colonel Shepard's request, we lashed boats for the sociability of the thing. We rigged a plank bridge with a railing to it so that the ladies could pass from one steamer to the other without assistance though Owen was always ready when the young ladies wished to pass from one to the other. After this job had been done, I went forward and found Cornwood at the helm, where I had left the pilot. I was not exactly pleased to see him at the wheel. After we had left the wharf, Nick and the Floridian had been permitted to enjoy the liberty of the deck, and I did not believe they would be likely to attempt to escape while the country seemed to be covered with water in every direction. "'What are you doing there, Cornwood?' I asked as I entered the pilot house. "'The pilot has gone below for some matches, and I offered to take the wheel while he was absent replied Cornwood in the mildest of tones. I will thank the pilot to call a deckhand when he wants to be relieved, I replied. You think I mean mischief, I dare say, he added with a silky smile. But you can see that I can do no harm if I desired to, which I do not. Captain Blasblow is at the wheel of the other steamer. At this moment the pilot came in with a cigar in his mouth and took the wheel. "'Captain Garningham, I should like to have a little talk with you,' said Cornwood. He led the way to a couple of chairs on the forecastle, which had just been abandoned by the young ladies. "'Captain Garningham, I have been subjected to such an outrage as I never before experienced in my life,' said the Floridian. I think you cannot greatly wonder at it, I replied. Should you wonder at it if a party were to come on board of the Sylvania, take you by force, strip you almost to the skin, and rob you of your money? That is precisely my case, and you say I need not greatly wonder at it, continued Cornwood as mildly as he had begun. I think my case would be a little different from what yours was, I replied. 
as yet i have not even been informed of the cause of such brutal treatment if you had stayed a few hours longer in new orleans and had not treated the men you picked up on the house so liberally i should have sought a remedy in a writ of habeas corpus I don't think you were quite ready to adopt such a course as that, for it would have resulted in having you sent to the caboose to wait for a requisition from the governor of Florida, I answered, laughing at what I considered the absurdity of the proceeding. The only reason we did not hand you over to the police was that we were afraid of being detained as witnesses. I understand you, and I prefer to fight this battle in some other state than Louisiana. I shall not try to escape, and I know that Nick Boomsby will not. If I am not always honest, I am now, and I assure you I don't know the reason for the savage treatment I received on board of the Islander, and I will thank you to tell me. In a word, I entreat you to do so. I concluded that Cornwood wanted to prepare for his defense, for I was satisfied that he understood the charge as well as I did, but he seemed to be so earnest over the matter that I went over the case for him. When you started from St. Augustine to recover the Islander, you were satisfied that Nick Boomsby had stolen the $4,000, I proceeded. On the contrary, I was satisfied that Buckner stole it interposed Carnwood. I am stating my belief, be it right or wrong. When I told you about the sailing of the Islander without her owner and his family, you were satisfied that Nick was on board of her and that he had the money stolen from the messenger. Nothing could be further from the truth, but go on, added the Floridian. You would not have gone to Key West to stop the Islander at your own expense. I did go at my own expense, added Cornwood with a smile. But not to stop the islander, I added. I admit that I had another mission there. I had been thinking of going to Key West on business for a week. When you got there, you forged a letter to Captain Blasplow to induce him to leave before the arrival of the Sylvania, I added. That was a little harmless strategy to enable me to carry out the purpose for which I went to Key West, added Cornwood, with the smoothest of smiles. I never heard forgery called by that name before, I replied, with becoming severity. It was not to obtain money or any other valuable consideration from Colonel Shepard that I wrote his name, why, I could have made two hundred dollars by detaining the islander, said the Floridian with spirit. Instead of doing what he employed you to do, you sold him out and let his steamer go off without you. You were satisfied that Nick had the four thousand dollars with him and you were bound to have the half, if not the whole of it. It looks like a plain case. You are taking an entirely wrong view of the matter, Captain Garningham, protested Cornwood. I shall be able to prove in due time that you are utterly mistaken. Two thousand dollars were found on you and the same on Nick. I grant that this fact has a 
suspicious look about it, and I cannot greatly blame you for your course, though the brutality exercised on me was entirely unnecessary. Now I will explain the whole matter to you just as it was, and you will see that you were greatly mistaken. I am ready to hear anything you have to say, I replied. That $4,000 is a rather annoying coincidence, he began. I should think it might be, I added. You'll quite mistake my meaning. I am willing to admit that I have told professional lies in the interest of my clients. I am Buckner's counsel, though I told you to the contrary. He admitted his guilt to me. Did he, indeed? Did he tell you what he did with the package of bills after he took it from the counter? He did. He acknowledged that he was guilty and told me how it was done, replied Cornwood, with easy assurance of which I had seen a great deal on his part. Buckner's wife was at the door of the saloon, and he gave the package to her as he rushed out. She had it under her shawl before Nick got halfway to the door. She went home, and my client considers it a successful affair. He offered me $500 to get him out of the scrape, and that is the fee for which I am working just now in part. And he gave you the money, did he? I asked, hardly able to keep from laughing in the face of the guileless Floridian. Not he, for his wife started for Kentucky or some other state as soon as she got the money. This is where the unlucky coincidence comes in. My first business in Key West was to see that Nick did not return home, as I feared you would compel him to do when you found him on board of the Islander. My second was to pay $4,000, which I drew from the First National Bank of Florida Friday morning before I started for Cedar Keys. Oh, I see. That was where the $4,000 came from, I exclaimed. Precisely so. I was to pay it into the Marine Court, pending a suit in which I was interested against a salvage company. But you did not pay it in. How could I when it was Sunday? I intended to do so the next day. When I found that Nick did not mean to stop in Key West, I directed Captain Blastblow to get up his anchor and hurry to New Orleans before the Sylvania came in. I could not get ashore myself when I had induced Nick to continue the voyage. The $4,000 was a burden to me, and I asked Nick to take part of it from me to keep till we got to our destination. The loss of it would ruin me, and I thought it would be safer in the care of two persons than one. That's the substance of it, and you can see that it explains the whole affair. I see it does. It makes it all as clear as Mississippi mud, I replied, laughing heartily. You evidently do not believe the statement I have made, said the Floridian, looking very much wounded in his feelings. Whether I do or not, Cornwood, we will not quarrel about it, I added as good-naturedly as I could. I will show you some documents I have in my valets, which will make it all clear as the pure waters of Green Cove Springs. 
I think I will not look at them at present. Has Nick learned this story by heart? I inquired. He used to be a very bungling liar when we were small boys together, and I don't know whether he has improved any or not. I think it is rather cruel of you, Captain Garningham, to sport with my feelings when I have been subjected to such inconvenience and discomfort by you. I must be candid with you, Cornwood. If I take your statement for the truth, I judge that you are liable to the state prison, or whatever you call it in Florida, for what you have done. You know that Buckner is guilty, but you are engaged in a conspiracy to keep the principal witness out of court, which makes you virtually an accomplice to the crime. You forget the duty I owe my client, who has entrusted his sacred liberty in my keeping. Most of the lawyers I ever knew were honest men, and I don't believe one of them would resort to such a trick to clear his client. What's all that? I exclaimed as I saw a gathering on the levee on the right bank of the river. A crevasse in the levee, said the pilot. It's a bad one, too. A steamboat was backing her wheels near the opening, evidently to prevent being sucked into the breach by the furious current that poured through it. Quite a number of men were assembled on the levee, but they seemed to be incapable of doing anything to stop the flow of the water. When we came abreast of the crevasse, we could see through it to the country beyond, and it was covered with water which was pouring in through the breach at a frightful rate. That was done by the crawfish that burrow into the levees, for I see some of their houses on the top. Where they go when it is high water, said the pilot. Just then a rowboat came to the crevasse and fearlessly headed into the opening. In an instant it was swamped, and the two men it had contained were struggling in the mad current. They held on to their oars and were swept rapidly inland. There will be a hundred lives lost by that break, added the pilot. There are several plantations on that knoll, and the water is lifting the houses on it. I could see the houses toppling over half a mile from the levee. End of chapter.